Hey guys, and welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm Caitlin Dorsey, an Abundance Alchemist, animal lover, trauma survivor to thriver, mindset expert, self-love junkie, and author. This is the place to be to grab those powerful tools, ideas, and inspiration to make lasting changes in yourself and your life. No more waiting, my friends, because it's time to show up unapologetically, radiate that confidence, and create a life you absolutely love. Time to buckle up and dive on in. Hello, my high-vibing friends. I'm so excited you guys are here today. And as always, I'm super excited to introduce you to our amazing guest today. Um, So we are going to be chatting with Douglas Knoll. He left a successful career as a trial lawyer, lawyer to become a peacemaker. His calling is to serve humanity, and he executes his calling at many levels. He's an award-winning author, teacher, trainer, and highly experienced mediator. Doug's work carries him um, from international work to helping people resolve deep interpersonal and ideological conflicts to training life inmates to be peacemakers and mediators in maximum security prisons. So welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thank you, Caitlin. It's great to be here. Um, So I first want to start out, I love kind of that you do um, work with inmates. I have you know, done some of that myself. Um, I worked in community corrections for a while with addiction. So that's always super interesting to me. So I know that um, for the past 10 years, you've trained about thousands of people with, you know, murder sentences and life sentences in prison to be peacemakers. And you call it the prison of peace project. And I love to just kind of hear what that looks like and how that is. (laughs) Back in 2009, my close friend and colleague, Laurel Copper, received a letter from a woman who was serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in what was then the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, Valley State Women, Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California. And she was standing at her mailbox on that August day and pulled out her mobile and called me because I live about an hour and 15 minutes from the prison Mm -hmm. and read me the letter and said, what do you think? And we're both professors and experienced mediation trainers. And I thought, this would be really cool, mm-hmm. and could, could we could maybe maybe make a real difference. And I had developed a very unique and innovative way to de-escalate angry people mm-hmm. that had been receiving a lot of skepticism. So I thought this would be a great place to acid test my ideas. I mean, yeah. if I could train a murderer to be a peacemaker, who can gainsay my work, right? Right. <laughs> That's how it started, and we so we went went through a lot of hurdles and obstacles, but finally got permission to go ahead in April of 2010 and started with 15 women, all of them serving life or long-term sentences. And Laurel and I developed a curriculum that, under the assumption that, that incarcerated people are there because they lack some really fundamental human skills. So we developed a, an 84-hour curriculum starting with basic stuff and ultimately taking them through a mediation training to become mediators. And the the results were of that first group were blew us away. Mm-hmm. Um, we took these 15 women who were called black thorns, and within six weeks, they were beautiful roses. They'd gotten mm-hmm. in touch with their humanity. They were uh, listening to each other. I mean, it was just phenomenal. And they were reporting stuff transformations in their community within the prison as well as with their families that was just remarkable so our plan was to to do uh make it sustainable so those 15 a lot of those 15 women ultimately became trainers and in three years uh we had built a complete we had trained over us and between us and our trainers we probably trained a thousand women in the prison how to at basic levels of how to be peacemakers mm-hmm. and the violence had ended we got a letter from the warden saying 
what you guys are doing here is remarkable. And so then the state decided to repurpose the prison to a men's prison. So the women were shipped out to other institutions, and we said we would follow them, which we did. And the warden then contacted us and said, we need programming here for the men. Would you please bring Prison of Peace back? Well, this time this project was completely pro bono. Mm. And Laurel and I both sacrificed our professional practices to do this work, and we were both kind of going deep into debt and mm -hmm. That, no, we can't afford to do this. But finally, we said yes. <laughs> and we still did it pro bono. So in October of 2013, we started working with the men's population and had exactly the same results. Worked with them for three years, built the program up to sustainability. We're about to quit mm -hmm. when the state finally recognized our work and started giving us some substantial grants to ex expand Prison of Peace into other institutions across the state. And today, well, pre-pandemic, we were in 15 California prisons, a prison in Connecticut, 12 prisons in Greece, and today we have startups in, in north, northern Italy and also in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. Wow. And because of the pandemic, of course, we could no longer do in-purpose programming, so we spent all of last year and are still working on it, uh, mm -hmm. filming our entire curriculum so okay. that by mid-year this year, we will be able to deliver the Prison of Peace curriculum to any institution in the world because everything will be subtitled in l different languages. And anybody who wants to facilitate teaching incarcerated people how to be powerful peacemakers and mediators will have access to our materials. You know, obviously, we have to train them on how to use it. But, mm -hmm. but So we're, we're really excited about the ability to expand the program everywhere. And we've gotten amazing stories and amazing results and the state has funded us to the tune of millions of dollars because although we're the most expensive one of the most expensive programs that the state funds they see the results we've trained over mm -hmm. three or four thousand people who have been released on parole and there's not one reported recidivism That's none of amazing. our none of our students have ever reoffended. oh my gosh that blows me away that's i mean that yeah. is absolutely incredible. And I, I love that work. I think that was one of the reasons that kind of drew me to you. And I was like, I've got to have him on the podcast. Cause you know, I think, um, obviously with my kind of background in, in counseling and uh, mental health and addiction, you know, I see these people that are getting kind of just written off in society and right. especially, you know, people in prisons and, you know, especially life sentences and people without parole. And so um, the work that you're doing is absolutely incredible. And, and I like that you said, you know, a lot of these people are just lacking these um, basic skills. Cause I know you kind of talk a lot about emotional intelligence and emotional competence and kind of what that looks like. And that's not something that we're truly born knowing how to do. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, an interesting concept for sure. Yes, it's worse than that. Uh, we are literally programmed to fail in relationships. We're, we're literally programmed to fail in a romantic relationships. Mm. We are literally programmed to fail in any kind of inter human relationship. We're literally programmed to failure from childhood on. And we don't even know that we're being uh, that, that that programming is going on. Our parents don't know it, their grandparents didn't know it, but we are but our whole culture, our whole society is designed, has been set up to have us fail in relationship. And the ultimate failure is the incarcerated person. Absolutely. That, yeah, I completely agree with that. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I talk to a lot of clients about kind of this idea that we're wired for kind of the negative, right? Like our society wires us to um, pay attention more to the negative, pay attention to more of the things that can go wrong. And, you know, then we have a lot of people that are saying, oh, just focus on the gratitude or focus on the good. And my, I always say, my husband's always says, um, 
it's just easier to to focus on the good and to be happy. And I'm like, well, technically, <laughs> you know, well, with how our brains are, it's not right. And and part of the part of the problem, the the reason I agree with all that, and and I would add to that that as children we suffer deep emotional abuse even from the most loving there is not a child on the planet that does not suffer deep emotional abuse because their parents emotionally invalidate them even the most loving parents emotionally invalidate their children and brain science shows that that's the worst thing you can do to a child's brain is Im- is invalidate their emotional experience and yet that's what we do you know, you're two years old and you fall down and you skin your knee and what are you told stop crying don't, do it in it. don't yep. cry don't be a sissy be a big girl. Put your big girl panties on. Be a manly man. Don't you know? Big big boys don't cry. We are told to stuff our emotions. Mm-hmm. That, the ACEs study out of San Diego shows that is the worst thing you can do to a child, and yet parents do it every single day, and they don't even know they're doing it. That's they think they think they're toughening their kid up, mm-hmm. when really they're programming their kid for emotional and romantic failure and relationship failure, and they don't even know that. And they yeah. wonder why, when kids become teenagers and then become young adults, why they're so screwed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but we're not programming them like you're saying. We're not teaching them how to experience their emotions, how to learn what an emotion is exactly. appropriate. And you know, I always tell clients too that every single emotion is not only valid but also healthy to have. Every That's single nice. emotion. Um, but we don't teach our kids that. We don't teach, and then you know, it's also it's this kind of perpetual cycle because we're That's not right. interrupting that. So it exactly. just keeps continuing. And it's this cycle. At its extreme, that leads to people committing crimes that put them in prison. Murderers are not born, they're bred. Mm-hmm. And it's not, well, there are, very, there are some very small minority of people who are genetically have brain defects that mm-hmm. cause them to be violent. But most of, most of, 98% of the people in prison were bred to be there. Mm-hmm. And, and even if it's not at that extreme, you look at the misery that people are suffering, the fact that they're not happy in their relationships, they're not happy in their lives, they feel shut down, you know, and, and numb. And it's it's almost a universal feeling. Yeah, and that's yeah. because of our cultural programming. It is, absolutely. And and I, I like that you touched on that piece about the murderers are not born because, you know, I think we've had this biz, big misconception, especially with a way that I think people allow themselves to feel okay writing those people off or people that have committed these crimes is kind of this idea of like, oh, well, um, you know, like if somebody was abused, they're going to be an abuser. Or if somebody was, you know, was raped, that they're going to be a rapist. And kind of this idea that they just are, oh, it's just a cycle. That's normal. And when we look at it, it's really not. Like you said, the, the it goes to extremes. Just because somebody is physically abused does not mean that they're going to physically abuse someone. What it means is that there is kind of this layer of, you know, emotional um, invalidation that occurred, emotional intelligence and competence that's not present. They're not knowing how to handle what's actually occurring to them because they were never set up for that success. So I think I always think of that's a really interesting piece because in, you know, my studies and um, my experiences, I've seen that that's not always the case, although it can be the cycle that occurs. There's reasons behind what's actually happening. That's right. It's all based on neuroscience and, you know, our brains are hardwired in a certain way and we have to go through certain developmental processes growing up. And if we don't go through those developmental processes, then it'll never happen. And if it doesn't happen, that means we're going to be dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the dysfunction is you can still be a functional adult in a physical body but and be stuck at six years old emotionally mm-hmm. and maturity, where most people are. 
And you can still function and be successful, but you're not going to have a deep, intimate relationship with your partner in marriage or any other kind of relationship. You're not going to be able to be a good leader because you don't know how to relate to people in an appropriate way. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and your life is going to be unfulfilled and unsatisfied. And that's what most people experience, unfortunately. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I ran some groups, you know, in, in, uh, some of our addiction facilities. And one of the biggest things that, you know, I've talked about in that groups is a lot of people don't like to the idea of in addiction, there is that really big idea of being emotionally stunted. And when you say that to somebody that's experiencing addiction, there's like this immediate, like, well, no, no, no. I, you know, know how to, function. I'm a functional alcoholic or I'm a functional addict because I have a job. I have relationships. And it's like, well, hold on. What is emotionally stunted mean? And it's true because once you stop, start using a substance, you are emotionally stunted at the age that you started using that substance. Cause you're no longer learning those coping skills, right? Like we're talking about, you're no longer allowing this process to occur. I would say that uh, for people who have addictive disorders, that their emotional stunning stopped a lot earlier than when they started using drugs. Absolutely. You know, they're obviously filling a hole, Mm -hmm. trying to fill a hole that was created by their parents Mm -hmm. um, back when they were small children. Yeah, absolutely. So let's break this down a little bit more for kind of our listeners that don't understand like the idea of what emotional intelligence is and emotional competence. Can we kind of break those topics down a little bit? So I'm one of the few people out there that say you cannot learn emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And anybody who tells you that they can teach you emotional intelligence really doesn't know what they're talking about. And it's a very simple concept. Emotional intelligence is a test. When Mayer and Solovi developed the term, term emotional intelligence as psychologists, what they were looking at were social intelligences other than cognitive, what we would call cognitive intelligence, mm-hmm. such as IQ. And they were just asking the question, what are some of the, uh, we must have other social intelligences. And they came up with this idea of emotional intelligence and then developed assessments to test, you know, whether or not people had what they called emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. So Daniel Goleman published his book in 1995. He's made hundreds of millions of dollars in this niche called emotional intelligence. But he, but he really, none of his stuff is backed by science. And in fact, the academics all look at him and say, this guy is crazy. He's just lying to everybody. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, uh, there's no science to back up any of his work. So, But what you can do, and this is where Goldman does correctly state things, is you can't learn emotional intelligence, but what you can learn is emotional competency. Mm -hmm. And if you learn to be emotionally competent, if you take an emotional intelligence test or assessment, you will score well on it Mm -hmm. if you have good emotional competency. And there are three basic competencies. The first is emotional Mm self-awareness. In other words, being able, when you have an emotional, at any point in the time of the day, you can say, this is the emotion that I'm experiencing right now. And this is my arousal state. So right now, I would say, I am excited to be here. (laughs) So I'm feeling excited and satisfaction and happiness that I get to share my ideas with you. Mm -hmm. And my arousal state is moderate. Mm -hmm. uh, And so kind of that's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. So, but but if you're not able if you're not able to do that, then you're suffering from what is known as alexithemia, and most mm-hmm. people suffer from some form of alexithemia, the inability to name your own emotions, yep. and that comes from childhood programming. Mm-hmm. So the number two skill is emotional self-regulation. Mm-hmm. So that means that when I'm having an emotional experience, am I going to be reactive to it? Is it acting as a trigger yep. to to programming, or can I choose a, another behavior or make another choice that really flies against the emotional experience mm-hmm. that maybe is more productive? 
And again, that's a function of programming. Most people have triggers. They've been programmed in, from childhood. They become emotional, say they get angry, and they're just going to explode, punch their fist through a wall. That is lack of emotional self-regulation. And the final skill, which is the most important competency, is empathy. And people have got empathy all wrong. Most people think that empathy, they look at empathy from a caring point of view. Put yourself in the other person's position. Walk a mile in their shoes. Feel what they feel. Ask questions. Totally wrong. <laughs> totally wrong. Empathy is all about information. And it's information management. And the information is emotional information. So I define empathy as the ability to read, assimilate, interpret, mm. and reflect back the emotional experience of the person from that person's frame of reference. That is what empathy is. And there are two kinds of empathy, cognitive and affective empathy. I teach cognitive empathy. And if you learn cognitive empathy, you develop affective empathy. Mm -hmm. um, so cognitive empathy means that I can read your emotional data fields and then reflect back to you your emotional experience. Affective empathy means that at some point in time after I've done practice cognitive empathy for a while, usually a couple of months, I can feel what you're feeling and simply reflect back my emotional experience, which is really your emotional experience, and very quickly tell you what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So to learn how to cognitive empathy, you learn a skill called affect labeling. Mm -hmm. affect labeling. And it's a, a three-step process. Step number one, ignore the words. You're confronted with somebody who's really upset or angry. Ignore their words. Their mm -hmm. words are not important. They really aren't for the next 90 seconds. Yep. Second, read their emotional data fields. Very easy to do because your brain is hardwired to do it. It's been mm -hmm. hardwired for millions of years by evolution to read emotions. We, our culture, just doesn't allow us to develop this innate ability. And the third step is to reflect back that person's emotional experience with a simple you statement. It's all this I statement stuff that people teach in active listening, all bullshit, all based on Thomas Gordon from the 1960s, all wrong, no science to support it. Marshall Rosenberg stole Gordon's stuff and created nonviolent communication. Same stuff, doesn't work, won't work, never will work. Don't do it. Use a you statement. So I would say, so Caitlin, mm -hmm. really frustrated. You're really angry. Nobody's listening to you. You feel deeply disrespected. Nobody appreciates you. And you're a little anxious and worried. And you really feel betrayed and let down. And you're, and you're a little guilty and feel a little shame because you thought you should be able to cope with this and you're just having difficulties with it. And at the end of the day, you feel completely abandoned and unloved. Hmm. Yeah, you can connect with that a lot more than... Because people do tune out. They tune out when you're like, I feel that. <laughs> well, when you use an I statement for your own emotions, that's correct. So I could say, well, right. Kate, I'm really angry and pissed off right now because, you know, when you, when you leave your socks on the floor, I feel disrespected and, mm -hmm. you know, unappreciated. Right. That's an okay statement because I'm, I'm asserting my own emotions. But when mm -hmm. I'm talking and reflecting your emotions, right. I've got to use a you statement. Mm-hmm. And so that people have a real hard time with that because they're so used to using I statements mm -hmm. and they're so ego driven that they don't recognize that they've got to reflect back the emotional experience from the speaker's frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And this has all been uh, studied by in functional magnetic resonance imaging studies, brain scanning studies, mm -hmm. 
show what happens to the brain when you affect label somebody. Matthew Lieberman's lab out of UCLA has done a number of studies on this. Mm-hmm. It's remarkable to watch what happens. When you do this, two things happen. One, the emotional centers of the brain are inhibited, while at the same time, the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, our decision-making part of the brain, comes back online. And literally what happens is that as you, the listener, are reflecting back the speaker's emotions, you are lending your prefrontal, prefrontal cortex to the listener for the 30 to 90, to the speaker for the 30 to 90 seconds it takes for the speaker's prefrontal cortex to come back online. And once they come back online, they're calm, and now you can engage in some problem solving and mm-hmm. figure out what's going on. And that's the secret. So that's when you talk about kind of having um, this 90-second way to de-escalate somebody that's very frustrated or angry. That's kind of the process that you're walking through is what you correct. just walked us through. That's correct. Yeah, 90 seconds is all it takes. And you can feel that. I mean, even when, um, you know, even though I'm not in that explaining, I could feel like the validation of, wow, you know, if somebody is in that state and had that conversation with me, I'd say, oh, wow, they're actually understanding what I'm feeling, right? They're getting it. And that's what, and everybody gets that feeling. We're hardwired for this. It doesn't matter what your culture is. It doesn't matter your color of skin, where you grew up. Every human brain on the planet is hardwired this way. So it works everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and I've had students from all over the world mm-hmm. report back that they get the same exact experience everywhere from any culture. It's amazing. Yeah, and it goes to speak. I mean, even like you were saying, if you're with the um, prison to peace program or peacemaker program, that I mean, you're all, you're in different countries. So, like you're saying, you're already experiencing that. You already it's have everywhere. your own you know data that's backing up that this process is working. And the stories that we've gotten out of the prison project are unbelievable. I'll just tell you one quick story. Absolutely, please. Uh, this is one of the first ones which really moved me. So we were in uh, about the sixth week of training with our first cohort of women back in 2010. And we came into the conference room where we were training. It's not a corporate conference room. It's a very dingy, dirty, dark place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most prisons are not pleasant places to teach yeah. in. Uh, and one of our students was back in the corner of the room and she was quietly sobbing. So we saw her and walked over and Laurel next to her and said, Sarah, what's going on? And Sarah told us the story. She said, well, I've been in prison for 18 years. Mm-hmm. I'm serving a 20, 25 year to life sentence because uh, 18 years ago, I was an alcoholic and I killed, I was drunk driving and I killed a family of four. Mm. And I was not a scratch on me. And when I was sentenced, I had to give up my three-year-old boy to my sister to raise. And I've written to him every single week for the last 18 years, and I'd never heard a word from him. Uh, the only reports, he would never talk to me, he never came to visit. He just had nothing to do with me. And uh, so all I got were reports from my sister about how he was doing. So three days ago, I decided to write him a letter based on what you have all been teaching us about how to listen to emotions. And I just wrote a letter about reflecting back how I imagined what his emotional experience has been for the last 18 years from a mother who has completely abandoned him and is in prison. Mm -hmm. And today, for the first time in 18 years, I got a letter back from him. Mm. And he wrote, he was very angry, which he had every right to be. But at the end of the letter, he said, Mom, I love you. P.S. My girlfriend and I are going to come visit you in three weeks. Wow. And then she started sobbing again. And when I heard, I, my, my jaw dropped. I said, oh, my God, what do we have here? Mm-hmm. I know. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. And that's when we realized that what we were doing was totally right. 
and that we did have a powerful skill that really did work and was going to change a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. And it's changed a lot of lives, both inside and outside of prison. Yeah, it, that's incredible. I mean, <clears throat> so my experience, I, I just, as I'm thinking about, you know, my experience with working with inmates and, um, you know, it's been very different. Mine has been in situations of uh, involuntary psych units in Newark, New Jersey. Um, I worked in the community corrections facility that was not trauma informed. So very much run like a military. And, you know, I always see it's like that old idea of let's break these people down to get them to the place where we can like rewire them in society. And so, you know, I think that hearing this and thinking of those, um, those people that I met that touched my heart, because the thing is too, like, I think, like I said, it's so easy for people to write these people off. They're like, Oh, they've murdered somebody. They're a terrible person. But when you actually encounter these people, like you just said that lady, Sarah, and you see the emotion and you see, you know, that they're, they're a human and they're a person and there's some, like they're there, they're worth saving and they're worth, you know, engaging with it's it's a totally different story so i just wanted to kind of share that you know i love that this project is not about breaking people down or shoving in their face what they did wrong it's more about hey how can you learn this emotional competence to use it and reflect and you didn't you know do anything of like this is what you need to do sarah for writing your son a letter to make him forgive you it was something that she adopted on her own and to see the results. I mean, it's just, it's really powerful work. It touches my heart. So I just wanted to kind of share that it's so different than anything that is occurring that I've experienced in this field, especially with inmates. That's right. We, um, we, our tagline is from serving a life sentence to living a life of service. Mm -hmm. And when our, when people come into our program, we tell them this is not a self-help program. Mm -hmm. We're not here to fix you. We're not here to judge you. We're here to teach you how to serve others in your community for as long as you're here. And you may be here for a year. You may be here for 20 years. Mm -hmm. But if you're really interested in learning how to serve other people as a peacemaker and a mediator and stopping conflict and validating people in a really deep way, then you're in the right place. That's amazing. So I want to ask you... um, there's kind of this quote, and I, I want to know what it means. It's it's a quote that you said, and it says, listen others into existence. Right. So tell me what this means. <laughs> well, you sort of already experienced it. Okay. But, but uh, the way that that came about is I was working in a school district training middle school teachers mm-hmm. these skills for classroom control, We and we got brilliant results. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the school district just gave up on the project for reasons that are unknown to me. But one time we were, I was sitting in a peace circle, that, uh, the kind of thing we use with p- prison of peace, which is a very unique form of, we call it a listening, we call it a peace circle, but it's really a listening circle and very different than what other people conceive of as peace circles. And when we were all done, uh, there was an administrator who was sort of administering the work that I was doing. And she started crying at the end of the circle. And she said, that's the first time I've ever felt deeply listened to in my entire life, my whole life. I've been hidden, I've been ignored, I, I've been, and even in my work as a, you know, high-level administrator in the school district, I basically feel ignored and hidden and like I'm an invisible. Mm-hmm. This is a woman in her late 30s. Yep. And that's when I realized that we can listen, a lot of people feel that way. Mm-hmm. Men and women suffer from imposter syndrome, for example. You've probably seen that in your clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Where they feel like fakes. Or they don't feel they don't feel like 
anybody really gets them. Mm-hmm. They, and so they're lonely and sad, and they're trapped in their wall, emotional walls they put around them. The greatest gift we can give to another person, I have concluded, is to be able to listen them into existence by labeling their emotions, reflecting their emotional experience. And when we do that, just as you experienced a little while ago, people feel deeply heard and deeply validated. Mm -hmm. Once they have that experience of being deeply heard and deeply validated, everything changes in their life. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden, all this burden of crap that's been they've been programmed into is lifts off them and they feel whole and free mm-hmm. and so that's the concept of listening others into existence and you, you don't have to use it just for calming people down you can use it for anybody in any situation mm-hmm. because everybody has a need to be heard and so one of the exercises i've been doing during the pandemic is in my group coaching groups i'll i'll, I'll work with my students and i'll say all right what i want you to do tomorrow is to go outside, assuming the weather's nice. I live in California where the weather's always nice, mm-hmm. but in parts of the country, not so nice. <laughs> right. When the weather's nice, go around the block. Just take a walk around the block, social distance. But when you see a neighbor that maybe you don't even know who is out picking up the mail, picking up the paper, doing a little gardening, walking the dog, whatever, stop and say, hey, how are you doing? Just ask that question. How are you doing? And from there on out, label their emotions. They'll start to talk. Oh, I'm doing okay. Well, when somebody says they're doing okay, they're not. So what, what is emotionally going on? Oh, you're really frustrated. You're alone. You know, you're, this pandemic shut-in is really driving you crazy. And just start affect labeling them. And then watch what happens. Mm-hmm. And so they do that. And we come back next week. Well, what happened? And they said, unbelievable. All of a sudden, the whole neighborhood is changing. And people are coming out. And they're talking and listening. And even though there's social distancing. And there's a sense of connection and community. Because... We're listening each other into existence. And I said, yeah, you just started your first ripple of peace. Mm, I love and that. That's, we don't have to be Gandhi. We don't have to be Mother Teresa to create peace. All we have to do is start a little ripple. And the way we start that ripple is by listening other people into existence. And it can be with a perfect stranger. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I love that you're almost harping on this fact that you have to label the emotion because... Um, you know, I talk a lot about this idea of if you don't even know how to label the emotion that you're feeling, let alone what somebody else is feeling, then there's like, there's no way to even begin processing that. There's no way, cause you're not even able to get into that place where your body can experience it. Well, here's what's interesting, Caitlin, is that I've learned from teaching tens of thousands of people, both inside mm-hmm. of prison and outside of prison, is that I can take somebody who's alexithemic, who mm-hmm. cannot name their own emotions. Right. And I can teach them how to recognize and read the emotional data field of somebody else. And within a couple of weeks of practice, they are no longer alexithemic. They can start to recognize their own emotions. So to learn emotional self-awareness, that first emotional competency, learn how to affect label somebody else. And by learning how to affect somebody else, you can then begin to develop an awareness of your own emotions, which then allows you to self-regulate your emotional experience. Mm -hmm. So it's all backwards from the way everybody else teaches. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you this because it keeps coming up in my mind. You know, we've talked about kind of the idea of emo- uh, emotional invalidation with children and kind of some work that you've done with in schools. What do you think that there's this really big push right now for this kind of social emotional learning? Oh, man. And, so tell me what your thoughts are about this. Well, first of all, I think it's a great idea. Perfect. I think it's a wonderful idea, but the execution is horrible. 
horrible. Because how can you teach socio-emotional learning unless you have emotional competency yourself? And we're asking people in primary, middle school, and high school grades to try to incorporate socio-emotional learning into their classroom when they themselves have been emotionally abused, they've been traumatized, they've suffered the kind of emotional invalidation we've talking about, talking about, and nobody has ever, one, listened them into existence, or two, taught them how to listen their students into existence. Mm -hmm. So we're asking somebody to teach golf that doesn't even know how to pick up a golf club. Yep. And that's the problem. Yeah. And that's why socio-emotional learning is failing. Everywhere in the country, it's failing. Because we're not taking the time to train the teachers and coach the teachers how to be emotionally competent themselves. Yeah, that's awesome insight. Because I, you know, I look at social and emotional learning and I'm, from my background, I'm like, this is great information. This is great material. This is what kids need to be learning. But you're right. That's, that we're, you know, and then these kids are going home with information that's skewed because well, they learn it, and then their parents don't know it either. That's right. Well, that's the other problem, right? Is that you can teach kids. Uh, let's assume that you're emotionally competent as a teacher, and you know how to affect label, and you can listen your kids into existence. And now they go home, especially where I live, which is the, one of the poorest congressional districts in the United States, deep, deep agricultural poverty here, and with with all the cognitive <laughs> abuse and and problems that exist in poverty-stricken families. And they go home, and they're in abusive families. And they are invalidated and abused and put down. And now they're, it's, you know, the learning is difficult. Mm -hmm. But it actually turns out that if you have a strong teacher who's emotionally competent, the classroom becomes the safest place for the kid to be in. And that That's motivates right. the children to be in class and to do well, because this is where I'm safe. Right. Yeah, I, I you know, I think that's, kind of backed the way that my thinking process has started. I had so many friends when I graduated that, you know, one of the quickest jobs when you graduate for human services, um, my concentration was in mental health counseling, but a lot of my friends went directly with a bachelor's degree into um, working for child protective services and things like that. And they were like, oh, you should, you should go into that with us and work with kids. And I immediately was like, I don't want to work with kids because I feel like you can do only do so much with children in that sense that if you are not helping their parents be better for their children, then it stops there. Like, and yes, you can help kids, but it's right. not effective in the sense of if you're not fully helping their parents understand and learn these skills as well. And here's what's really sad. I have developed a program called the Parents Game Changer, where mm -hmm. I teach these skills to parents. Yep. Zero interest. Wow. Parents have no interest in learning these skills. Even parents from non-poverty-stricken families, middle-class, upper-class, upper-middle-class families, zero interest in learning how to loosen their children into existence. You don't don't tell me how to do this. I I'll just do it. I mean, they just. I mean, there's no interest from parents learning how to do this. I'm I'm blown away by that. Yeah, that blows as me as away too. Other, as I talk to other early childhood development people, consultants, and teachers, they say, "Yeah, this is the norm." Parents just have no interest. We've had all this great material to teach them how to be effective parents and really coach and raise competent adults, and they have no interest in it. And that, you know, that blows me away because especially, so I, I'm reading this book. Um, I'm 
about seven months pregnant. So, you know, I'm coming into learning to be a parent for the first time and it is blows me away that it's just expected that people know how to be a parent. I have no idea how to be That's a parent right. <laughs> and right. I'm okay well, with that. I'll learn. Right. When you but, think about it, 100, 150 years ago, mm-hmm. it was very simple because life was very simple. You were living on, you were living in a, a you know, subsistence existence on a farm somewhere. Mm-hmm. And as a young woman, you have your baby and you've got to keep the baby alive. One out of, you know, only one out of five survives five years. Mm-hmm. So you don't invest too much in the baby until they're old enough to, that you know they're going to get past the childhood killing diseases. Mm-hmm. And basically the child becomes a laborer at five years old and starts learning how to, as soon as they can walk and talk, they, they start contributing to the putting food on the table. Mm-hmm. And that's what life was. It was just a cycle of very little happiness. I mean, some happiness, but, but really very little hard, hard physical work, mm-hmm. starvation constantly at the door, poverty constantly at the door. And so the life cycle was didn't take a lot of skill. I mean, you just had to have enough nurturing to keep the child alive physically. Mm-hmm. And that's what parents were expected to do is provide physical safety for their children and provide food and shelter. And the child was expected to obey and fall into line and contribute to the overall survival of the client. Mm-hmm. That all changed 50 years ago, post-World War II. But you know what's interesting is the idea that people have still held on to that basic truth. Because when you ask people, you know, I've heard this this joke, you know, so many times of if you keep the child alive that day, you did a good job as a parent. And that just makes my skin crawl because I'm like, no, I didn't. Well, it was true 150 years ago, but it's right. not today. Not for today, right. And so, you know, I've been reading a bunch of different research and looking at just different um you know, things, obviously I'm in the counseling field. So I'm looking at, you know, how can I set my child up for, um, you know, being emotionally competent and all these things we're talking about. And one of the things that really blew me away is I'm I'm reading this book that talks a lot about French parenting styles versus, um, you know, American parenting styles and kind of just looks at some of the differences in the two. And it's not necessarily all about different parenting techniques. It's just kind of some of the cultural differences. And it said, you know, one of the biggest issues with American parenting styles right now is the idea of this hover mom or hover parenting. And it blows me away that we have this, this idea of hover parenting and hover mom. And how can I, you know, I'm going to put my kid in Mandarin lessons when they're two years old to try Mm -hmm. to get them ahead of the curve, but then we're not willing as parents to adapt something like what we're talking about. We're not willing to change ourselves and to make ourselves better when the reality is our kids are learning from us. So we need to represent that. So here's why, because parents are emotionally incompetent Mm -hmm. uh, and they have been programmed to fail in relationship and they are failing in their relationship with their marriage. They think they're happy, but really deep down they know this is, is this all there is? Mm -hmm. And they are afraid of their own emotions. Oh yeah. And, And so as a result, they are fearful of developing their emotional competency because one, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Two, it's going to bring up too much pain because now I'm going to have to confront all that pain of that abuse that everybody yeah, yeah. carries around. Mm-hmm. And none of this is true, but that's the fear that people have. Or three, it's going to take way too much work because everything I've heard about doing inner work and self work, it's all this years and years and years of work. Well, no, it's not. It takes about it takes about 15 minutes to get the idea and, and about two or three weeks of practice to really master it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's still all this cultural resistance to it. There is, yeah. So how can 
people get started in this? Like, what's the first step for somebody to take if, you know, our listeners are saying, okay, I'm a parent or I'm just, I'm not a parent and I want to really get into emotional competence and how do I start? So what would I, you say? I created a webpage for you or anybody who's listening just for, just for you. Okay. Awesome. It's, it's Doug Noel, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L dot C-O slash alchemist. Perfect. Okay. That's it. Go to that webpage for resources. One resource is a free ebook. Talks about everything that we're talking about here and even tells you how to do it for free. Excellent. Number two, buy my fourth book, Deescalate. You can buy my fourth book, Deescalate, which elaborates, obviously, on everything we've been talking about mm-hmm. in much more detail. Three, you can take buy a course for $200 mm-hmm. uh, on how to deescalate angry people, which mm-hmm. is an online video course I've created that will teach you basically these skills. You're applying it to angry people, but it really applies to anything else. And then four, if you're really interested in developing your emotional competency, I have a very advanced course, the the basic and advanced courses in emotional competency, which is quite a bit more expensive, Mm -hmm. Um, although I give everybody a 50% discount. And that course will teach you everything we're talking about. And when you get through that course, which includes some coaching calls with me, Mm -hmm. when you get through that course, you will be emotionally competent. And you'll know, for example, you'll know what to say, how to say it, and when to say it to any person, no matter how intense the situation. Perfect. I love that. And I appreciate the ebook. That's awesome. Um, For our listeners, definitely jump over and grab that. I'm going to put that um, website in our episode notes. So you can just click over and go ahead and grab that. Um, I have one more question for you before we wrap up. I'm loving our conversation. You talk about... um, this idea of a hidden genius. Yes. Tell me what that is and why is it hidden? Our hidden genius are our emotions. Okay. And it's <laughs> because we have been living for the last 4,000 years under the myth of rationality. We've been taught by, by theologians and philosophers that what separates humans from other animals is our rationality, our ability to reason. In the last 30 years, neuroscientists have proven that that's a myth. We are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. We can't even be rational unless we're emotional first. And so when you learn, so think about it. If we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational, and we're told that to be emotional is to be weak, it's evil, it's irrational, it's bad, it's not what it means to be a man, or it doesn't mean to be a woman if you're angry. You can't be angry if you're a woman. You can't be sensitive and compassionate if you're a man, which is what our culture teaches, right? Absolutely. Um, we are leaving 90%, 98% of who we are on the table. Jeez. And so our hidden genius is our ability to master our emotions, to become emotionally competent so that we can listen other people into existence. We can mm-hmm. soothe upset people. We can take a two-year-old and stop the tantrum in literally 30 seconds. We can soothe an elderly person who's suffering, and we can soothe them emotionally. We can soothe ourselves emotionally. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, we unlock our hidden genius, which, which all of a sudden leads to a life of fulfillment and happiness because we learn how to serve ourselves and serve others in a very deep and profound way with no effort, mm-hmm. no effort and no cost. I love that. I think, too, that you know, originally when I had looked at, um, you know, like how do you calm an angry person in 90 seconds? I thought, 
okay, there's there's two ways this conversation could go. It could go really <laughs> well, or it could be a really big manipulation That's kind right. of tactic and tool, right? But I love that you just kind of put that out there as a hidden genius is you're not, this is not manipulation in any way. You can't, you, if you try to manipulate, it won't work. Right. This is very much that soothing. Work. I love that you use that word. This is learning to soothe other people, learning to soothe ourselves and learning to experience our emotions because right. we are humans. We are supposed to have emotions. We're supposed to experience all those emotions. That's right. Those emotions are there and it's information, it's data, it's like numbers on a spreadsheet and it gives us valuable information that helps us make good decisions. In fact, all the I teach a course called Decision Making Under Stress and Conflict and the first thing I teach my graduate students is if you don't understand your emotions, you will never be able to make a good decision Yep. because our decision, our emotions inform us about problems that we've got to be looking at and thinking about before we can engage in any kind of effective decision making process, whether it's a personal decision or a business or professional decision. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think there's so much power in that because there is this path of thinking that we can be very practical and logical and that emotion is not in being practical and logical. And that is like, we're talking about completely inaccurate. You just can't like, you can't even make those decisions because you're going to experience emotions immediately. We're wired to. That's right. So, so I mean, you talk to all these STEM people, science, you know, and technology, education, math, and, and, and I work with engineers and scientists, and they're all linear, mm -hmm. rational thinkers. What they're really doing is they're running from their emotional experience. The reason that they're drawn into the sciences is because they were abused as children. They don't know they were abused, but they were abused and traumatized emotionally. And they, they, have a, they, they go to science because it's clean and simple and understandable, and it's not messy, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've never been taught how to be emotionally competent. And they've never been taught that emotions are data. Mm -hmm. And so they are emotional. Mm -hmm. They just stuff it because it's too uncomfortable and painful to confront something they're not competent at. Right. Well, I think that's an awesome place for us to to stop and wrap up this conversation. It has been so enlightening. Um, and I appreciate all the information you've shared with us and our listeners. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. And uh, for all of our listeners, again, I will put that um, website that Doug spoke about um, that's specific for us, get all those resources. Um, like we talked about, parents, people, make yourselves better and enjoy your life so that it's not a perpetual cycle anymore. Um, and as always, rate, subscribe, review. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you thought of this conversation, other topics you want to hear. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Bye, guys. Thank you for hanging out with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Don't forget to head over and grab your free self-love activation meditation at theabundancealchemist.com and hit subscribe here so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, sending you so much love.